So Philippians chapter 2, and if you could open that up, and while you're opening that up to Philippians chapter 2, let me tell you about the Ackley family's movie choice would really be. If we want to watch a movie, one of our top 10 movies, maybe even top 5, is Megamind. And most people that I talk to don't even, have never even seen it. I'm just telling you, your life is incomplete. Megamind is a really good animated superhero movie. And the movie uses a storytelling technique. Now, I bet not one of you came to church today thinking that you're going to learn Latin. But I'm going to teach you a very, very brief Latin phrase. And it goes like this. In Medias Reis. In Medias Reis. And what that means is in the middle of things. And if you've seen Megamind... You have the anti-hero falling out of the sky to what seems his certain doom. And then it freezes and takes you all the way back to the beginning of the story, and you get to see how it unfolds to get him to that point. That's that Latin storytelling technique. We're going to use a very similar technique. We're actually going to start in the middle of the passage... And we're going to go forward a little bit, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of our verses, and we're going to see what the Lord is going to have for us today. We're going to see a very difficult command. And the urgent reason that the Apostle Paul gave it, and then we're going to see how we can have the power to live it out. So we're going to look at a command, the urgency for it, and then the power Enable, that can enable us to live it out. So here we go. You ready? I've got three points for you today. Very simple sermon, but there's a lot of density to it. Very simple, but a lot of density. Here we go. Do not complain, number one. Already, we should have all gotten sucked into this sermon because every one of us complains. Do not complain is the command. Look at verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to this incredible church in the city of Philippi, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If this is not an overwhelming command, then I'm not sure what would be. Don't complain. It may be the most common sinful act of our mouths. And it's the most difficult one, I think, to stop. Now, you remember, we're in a series 12 weeks long. We're six weeks in. It's called the Heart Talk series. And Jesus said that out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And we're looking at how do we change the way that we speak, the words that come out of our mouths. Well, how we change that is to get to the heart. And that's what we're looking at week after week. Complaining is difficult to stop. There is no sector of our lives that is off limits to grumbling and complaining. Sociologists say the average person spends 10 hours a month at work complaining. They tell us that there's one complaint a minute that comes out of the average American mouth. Neurologists, those that study the brain and the central nervous system, tells us that habitual complainers actually rewire the neuronal pathways in their brains. And they can actually rewire it so that it's ingrained into a complaint pattern. 
Well, let me tell you personally, in three decades of my own research, I've discovered that the average Christian in the American church complains a lot. How's that for sophisticated analysis? We complain about weather. We complain about the traffic. We complain about politics and our health and dinners and people and work and school and church and parents and children and families. We complain about anything and everything. Albert Einstein once said, stay away from negative people. They have a problem for every solution. And if you're married to a negative person or you know a negative person, you'll know just how true that really is. So therefore, Paul tells us very succinctly, very briefly, very concisely, do everything without grumbling, without complaint. Well, what is grumbling? And I think that would help us get a little bit deeper of a look at this. Grumbling is the heart attitude that results in complaining. So grumbling is what you do, but it comes from your heart. It's your outlook. It's your perspective. It's the way you think about something that's frustrating you. It's the way that those thoughts are reinforced by emotions of frustration. And it's the actions, then, that you do. So grumbling is a bad attitude in your heart that results in words of complaint. And grumblers, they have heart issues, and those heart issues are roots that sprout. And the Bible warns us very, very clearly. Listen to this verse from Hebrews. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now, did you get the pathway that those roots go? They emerge out of our own hearts, but they go laterally. They corrupt other people. One version says, defiles many. So grumbling never stays in your own heart. It finds, it seeks an audience. It actually affected the ministry of Jesus, John chapter 7. And there was much muttering. That word is literally the same Greek word for grumbling in our passage. There was much muttering about Jesus, a lot of complaints about Jesus among the people of Israel. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So they were grumbling quietly, not openly, yet it was spreading. It was moving among the people. The grumbler can powerfully affect. And listen, if you've been on a sports team with a negative complainer, it can, it can affect your entire team. It can affect your town. And it leads to disputing. Now, I told a lot of you who have been here for a while, I, I grew up in central New York at a very little town called DeRider, New York. And we have in town around 600 people. And then if you bring the farmers and the people that live outside of town in, it's around 1,500 people. But that number of 600 people in town has been there for a long time. You know what? I did some studying recently on my town. I'm very fascinated by things like that. I love to research so I googled DeRider, New York, and I found something I had never known before. It was October 31st, 1949. 
And Roland Sherman and his wife, they were 50 years old, their children were at college, they came in by themselves, they moved into Derrida, New York, and they started a restaurant called the Sherman Luncheonette. But nobody in my town liked them. Now, I'm born in 1966, so don't look at me like I'm some bad person. Nobody liked them. And they gave a lot of reasons for it. They were always telling people what to do, and they were religious. One report said that kids had come into the restaurant, and Roland kicked them out because of their behavior. And it never would go away, and those kids began to grumble, and it began to spread until October 31st. The entire town, they said, gathered outside their home. They lived above the restaurant. They brought manure spreaders. They brought old, burned-out cars. They brought cement blocks. They barricaded the entire house with Roland and his wife inside of it, and they would not let them out, and they began throwing tomatoes and squash at the windows of their home above the restaurant until they finally called the police which had to come all the way from Casanova 30 minutes away to rescue them and everybody in the town was involved including the mayor and I know the mayor's kids and I didn't even know this it all started when they kicked those kids out of the restaurant and those young men began to grumble and it began to spread and it began to gather a mob that went in dispute to barricade them in their home. That was in my little hometown of Derrida. It was amazing. You see, disputing, look at your verse again, disputing indicates evil thoughts that spring out of our mouths. And a better word for it probably is just arguing. Grumbling leads to arguing. And it creates unrest in your family, in your school, in your workplaces, in your church, in your neighborhood. So grumbling never stays in your own heart with a bad attitude. It spreads to other people, and it will create discord. And we see this all through America. I mean, you can't get onto any news outlet without watching this unfold in front of your eyes. And it happens in our churches as well. If we change the paint color of these walls, I will guarantee you that there, I know this because we did it at our other campus, there will be murmuring, there will be grumbling that will lead to disputing. And people might not like the worship decibel level. They might not like the decorations that come up for the holiday season. They may not like the sermon. It could literally be anything, but you make an evaluation of church. I do as well. And if it's a bad attitude, it's going to result in grumbling, and that will always spread. The person gets upset, and they grouse, and they mutter irritably. And amazingly, this is the amazing part to me, they find other people that feel the same way. I don't know how. I don't think they take out an ad in the Cornerstone Gazette. They just find other people until there's a group of people who are upset and try to force change, get rid of leadership, or they leave if everything else fails. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. And Paul is writing expressly, explicitly towards that problem in the church. And it leads us to point number two. Grumbling... And disputing douses your light. 
It douses your light. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Now we're going to take a little bit of a journey. I told you already we're going to go back to Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible, really easy to find. But the Apostle Paul has Old Testament Israel on his mind as he's writing this. And there are two phrases that tell us this, grumble or disputing, and the second one is crooked and twisted generation. Did I, can, I, can you look at me for a second? Did you know that Moses was a songwriter? He actually wrote several songs. And one of the songs in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 has a lyric in it that goes like this. He's speaking of Israel. They are a crooked and twisted generation. He's not talking about the Philistines, not the Amalekites, not the Egyptians, not the Hittites. He's talking about the Israelites. So we're going to actually find this, and we're going to watch how this unfolds in the congregation of God's own people called Israel. Open up to Exodus chapter 16, or uh, rather 14. Go all the way back to that second book of the Bible. We're coming back to Philippians, but we're going to look for just a few minutes in Exodus. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, it is days, only days, after God had led the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And he leads them purposefully, very intentionally, to the edge of the Red Sea, so they can't go forward, and the Egyptian army is furious, and they are pursuing them, and they are going to kill everybody. And they cry out, Israel does, to Moses, verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Now this is what grumbling looks like. But God is merciful. He's very patient. He miraculously delivered them. You know the story. He divides the Red Sea and he takes them through it on dry ground, and then he closes the water over the pursuing Egyptian army. Yet a few verses later, now you're in chapter 15, can you flip there? They now are coming to the edge of, I think, a lake system. But it's bitter water, it's not drinkable, and they are very thirsty. So verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses. Now, can you look at me for a moment? Because I'm telling you, we all grumble, we all complain. And it is reprehensible to God. So if you haven't yet put the urgency in your heart to respond to this message, you need to start putting that in there even now, as I do as well. Because this is going to start coming down on you like a 10-ton weight. Which, by the way, is a very good thing because it bows you down to the throne of mercy to ask for help. So we're in chapter 15. The people are grumbling against Moses and God being so merciful to us. He heals the water. But now it's just days later. This is not months. This is just days later. Now it's chapter 16, verse 2, and the people of Israel are hungry 
In verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You see how it's starting to spread? It was just Moses. Now it's Moses and Aaron. And they're grumbling out of their hunger. There's an obstacle for them. They don't know where they're going to get food for two million people. That's about how many people they had. Where are we going to feed? How are we going to get water for them? Well, you've led us out here to die. And God will miraculously feed them. He starts a Cinnabon franchise, I think, with manna. But now he begins to diagnose their hearts. Look at verse 8, and you're going to see now what's going on in the hearts when we grumble and complain. The Lord has heard your grumbling against who? Against him. Look at verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling. He doesn't say against Moses and Aaron. That's verse 2. But you got to go deeper into the heart, and where God looks, he sees their grumblings really against him. And he says, your grumbling is not against us. That's what Moses is saying. It's against the Lord. Now, let's sober up for a moment. Can you all look at me? It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. This is something you can understand. Every complaint that you will ever utter at its deepest root is against God. It's against God. So when you leave here after this message, and invariably something does not go the way that you want this evening or tomorrow, and your impulse is to complain, you need to arrest your soul and stop it in its tracks because you're about to complain against God. You may think it's against your parents. You may think it's against the driver in front of you that's going under the speed limit. You may think it's against the one that undercooked or overcooked your steak. That's not really at the deepest root. It's against God. That's what makes this so terrible. We've arrived now to the root of grumbling, the defiant proclamation that we do not like what God is doing in our lives, and we voice our displeasure, and other rebels quickly agree. That's what happens in grumbling and disputing. God, we don't like it. You may never mention his name, but that's where your heart is going. We don't like the situation. I'm frustrated because I cannot get what I want. My will is frustrated. It is Locked, and my response is to complain, but it's vertical, and it brings other people into it, and it leads them into sin. Now, just think for a moment at your workplaces and at your schools, because I think I've just about got everybody. A lot of complaining going on at work. Is there a lot of complaining going on at school? Are you a light pointing people to Jesus? Or has your own grumbling doused your witness? That's exactly what Paul is asking. This is why this is so important. Grumbling and disputing reveal that we do not truly want 
or believe that God is sovereign over all things, nor is he perfect, good, and loving toward us. Now, I'm going to say that again because this is so utterly deep, and it's so important that you understand this, that you must grasp this. Every complaint that we utter is a declaration of defiance. God, I don't like your sovereignty which is his power to bring all things into conformity to his will. I don't like how you're leading my life. Because I don't really believe it's the best way for me. I've got a better way. And I'm going to exert my will. And I'm going to come up on that throne. And I'm going to rule my kingdom until I get my life the way I want it. That's grumbling and disputing. And it doesn't look very good, does it? Time after time, Israel grumbled. They complained. They disputed against Moses. And then it spread to Aaron. But really, they were grumbling against God. And Moses told them they were a crooked and twisted generation. And we could be a crooked and twisted church. Because it destroys the witness of God's community. It douses your light. My daughter came to me last year telling me that her car's headlights hardly lit up the road at night. So we went out there the next day and I had one of those lens polishing kits. And we looked and sure enough her headlight lenses were covered with that almost that milky white layer that you've seen on on headlights, just this gunk. And so we used this restoration kit, and after using it, the lights were significantly brighter. And that's what the church is to be. We are to be a light. We are to shine brightly. We live in a very morally dark world that's hopeless and grumbling. When we do it, douses your light. You're no different. I'm no different than anybody else. So Paul tells us, how to restore our brightness. Here's the restoration kit for your soul. Number one, look at text. We're back in Philippians 2. He says be, that you may be blameless. This is the antidote. This is how to get your light back. It means to be without defect. Paul tells us we are to be blameless and we are for, to forsake complaining. It's essential. If our lights are going to shine, we cannot be complainers. Well, so far, that's not really that helpful. We already knew that, so it goes on. Um, I'll give you an example, though. Daniel chapter 6, and then the high officials and the satraps, these are the fellow wise people, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They hated him. They were jealous of Daniel. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. He was found blameless and there was no traction for the enemy. They couldn't grab anything in him. And then Paul says we need to be innocent. It's a word used for pure wine that's not mixed. A lot of times it would take wine and they would mix it with water. That's how it would last longer, they would get a lot more out of it. This was unmixed, the word innocent, it was, it was a word used for unmixed wine or actually for metals that had no alloys. If you ever think of aluminum, that's an alloy. There's other metals mixed in with it or other products mixed in. We're to be Christians 
who walk the walk and talk the walk, talk the talk. It's unmixed. Our hearts producing words of life. We taught our kids, I bet you've done the same thing. We've taught, we taught all of our kids, conduct yourself knowing that your last name is Ackley. Do not bring dishonor to our name. And God does the very same thing for his children who bear the name of his son. We are Christians, which means little Christ. So we bear the name of Jesus, and God says, be unmixed, be innocent, be pure. And then, by the way, if you're feeling that weight coming down on you, that's intentional. Paul is meaning to do that. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. And then he says, be children of God without blemish. This is a summary of the other two, but the word blemish... You can see the Greek word up on the screen. It's very, very interesting. Whenever you have the letter A in front of a Greek word, that means it negates it. It, makes, it means you've got to take the opposite of it, like the word unwholesome. UN makes it take the opposite. Momos, the Greek word here, was a mythological Greek god. He didn't do anything but fault find in the other gods. He complained. He grumbled. He muttered. He was eventually exiled out of Mount Olympus. He was the god of complaint. And Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be like a child of the Greek god, Momos. Be like the child of God. And we are to shine as lights in this fractured, dark world. And grumbling and disputing douses the light. And we who belong to God, who serve Jesus, he's the king of kings. We cannot be grumblers. We cannot be disputers. We stand out in the world when we trust God. When we refuse to complain about our situations. And that kind of faithful life, look what it says. It's the platform for the gospel. We hold Fast, it says in that verse, to the word of life. If you refuse to grumble at your job, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your family, in your church, you will be a light that is undousable. You will be utterly different than anybody around you that is not a Christian because this is the way of the world. This is the way of your flesh. You grumble when you don't get what you want until the gospel rescues you from it. But you get to hold fast to the word of life and we witness and we preach and we teach as much as we'd like. But if we're grumblers and mutterers and complainers and arguers, no amount of teaching will ever have an influence with anybody. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's what we do when we meet grumblers. We love them. We don't join in. But do you remember how we began this whole message? I, I taught you that Latin phrase, in medias res. You remember that? In the middle of things. And we have this lofty, seemingly impossible command to stop complaining and arguing. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, you're going to agree with me. Paul didn't understand the difficulties of modern America. He didn't understand all the things that are so difficult. I mean, it is hard following a slow car. Paul didn't get that. So how can our heart talk move from complaining and arguing to giving life to those around us? Well, here's the final point. God empowers our light. 
We've got to switch it on. God powers our light. We've got to switch it on. And we're going to see this in verses 12 and 13. But let me tell you one more time, Carissa came to me. This is a different time. Again, her car lights were dim. And we went out there, and I looked at her lights. That's the first thing I thought. Maybe they got that milky white substance over the lens, but they were clean. And we found that the problem was not the lens, or the lens is. The problem was a loose alternator bracket, and the belt couldn't fully power the lights. It was a really, thankfully, quick fix. Mercifully, the Bible doesn't just tell us to stop grumbling and do nothing to help us with it. It plugs us back into the power source. For God always gives us the power to do what he commands. That is the grace of our king. This morning, I got up early. I love to get up early. I get the whole house to myself. Get the wood stove really going. Get some heat going. And I can just study and read and pray. Get my coffee. But the coffee, it was really cold last night. We heat our entire home with a wood stove. So my coffee in a cold home got not hot pretty quickly. I couldn't think of the word. Smart pastors only at this church. So I took it up to the microwave, put it in the microwave, and that thing is really loud when it goes off, and everybody else is sleeping. So right when it got to the one-second mark, I pulled it open, and the entire microwave went dark. I'm going, what on earth happened? This thing's not even a year old. Go down, check the breaker switch. Everything was fine. What do you do when something breaks? You go to YouTube. That's what everybody does. And so I get onto YouTube, and I find out probably the fuse blew. I didn't even know a microwave had a fuse. Did you? No, you're no smarter than I am. So I went to YouTube, <laughs> and I figured out what it is. I took it apart. I'm trying to study, but I'm fixing microwaves this morning. I'll fix your microwave for a very nominal fee. I take it apart. I pull the fuse out. It's absolutely black. I don't have a voltage thingy. I just look. It's black. It must not work. Got a new fuse, put it in, worked right away. This is exactly the principle that Paul is going to teach us. God will never give us a command without giving us the power to obey it. Never. You read any command in the Bible, and if you try to do it without God's power, any of them, you're going to bow down under the weight, and you're going to fail. They're meant to fail you. They're meant to bring you to the end of your rope. So you've got to turn to God. That's the message of the gospel. God wants us to not complain. He doesn't want us to dispute. He wants marriages and families that aren't filled with complainers and aren't filled with arguers. He wants us to be peace-loving lovers. And he knows we cannot do it on our own because we're weak. He's going to tell us how it happens. We go all the way back to the beginning, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's talking about working out our salvation. Listen, if you've come up in an environment, religiously speaking, where you've got to earn by good works, God's favor, which is a lie that's not the gospel, it doesn't say work for your salvation, work out your salvation. Christian, if you have come to Jesus 
and trusting in him and not yourself, in Jesus and nobody else, in Jesus and not any other religion. Jesus alone is your savior and your king, that he died on that cross in your place to forgive you of your sins and to restore you to God, to give you a relationship to God and his family. If you have done that, simply realize that you're a sinner. And you're a helpless one because you can't fix your situation. But Jesus, I believe you can. And I believe that's why you died and why you rose again to give me forgiveness and life. And I want that. Would you forgive me and give me life eternal? God has saved you. And Christian, at that moment, you are signed, sealed, and delivered in Christ. And salvation will lead. It must lead to a lifelong process of sanctification, becoming cleaner in your soul, more holy in your morality. This is what sanctification is. It's becoming like Jesus. And that's what God is doing in us. I mean, it's one thing to purchase a race car, and it's another to learn how to drive it with dominance. Paul tells us you've got to learn to drive the car. That's sanctification. And you've got to exert great effort. And you've got to grow in your holiness with fear and trembling. You know, years ago, I know you can't tell this. My earliest, earliest career was health and fitness. I was going to be a fitness instructor. I was going to have a portable truck. And people were going to come into that truck. And I was going to work them out. And man, I was a stud. Okay, I just lied on that part. I thought I was, and I really wasn't. But I, w- I remember one time when I was weightlifting, and if you know anything about bench pressing, you're on your back, and you've got a bar, and you've got weights in the ends of the bar, and you bring it down to your chest, and you push it up. And I was going for my personal record bench press, and I picked that bar off of those stands. I was thinking 75 pounds has never felt so heavy. I lowered it to my, this is a true story, I lowered it to my chest And I did what I was always taught, visually exploded it upward like it was going to go through the ceiling over my head. And my explosive energy expired halfway up. I'm alone. Nobody was there. I don't know what I was thinking. I remember my arms were shaking. But I knew that to give up meant all that weight was going to get stuck on my chest, straining Eyes popping, vowing to never do this again by myself. I got that weight back up and racked it. Paul speaks of this effort. He does it in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 12. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He is putting everything he's got into his walk with Christ. Paul says, if we really believe that verse 16 is going to happen, you know, look at verse 16, Jesus is coming back. If you really believe that, and verse 10 is right, that we're going to bow before him, and we're going to confess him as our Lord and King, if you really believe those two verses, then no one should have more reverence, more fear and trembling than a Christian. The gospel is creating in God's people a desire to please Jesus more than anyone, more than anything. That we would want nothing in our lives 
that would displease Jesus. That is what love produces in your heart. Does that in your marriage? No effort is too taxing to make it the goal of becoming mature in Christ. But Paul is not telling individual Christians. This is actually one of the most misunderstood things in this passage. He's not telling individual Christians to work out their personal salvation, but rather we, church, community, are to work out our salvation in relation to one another in the church. Um, Let me show you that. Okay, you got to look in your Bibles. This is really quick. Look at verse 12. begins with therefore. That connects it back. Therefore, you always got to go backwards. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. You got the word so. If you use so at the beginning of your sentence, it's just connecting to something you just said. So you got to go backwards even more. You go back to verse 27 of chapter 1, and Paul said this, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's that word striving again, but he wants unity. And guess what? Verse 14 says, don't grumble, because it's going to lead to disputing, and disputing disunifies. And my thought, Paul says, through this whole thing, is that God wants unity. So there, you've got to have the, the help of the Lord. And you've got to do everything that you can to guard and maintain the unity of your marriage, the unity of your family, the unity of your witness, the unity of your church. And you cannot complain because it will kill it. See, God cares very, very much that we stop complaining. And he promises, verse 13, that God will work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Probably is my favorite verse in the Bible. Charles Wesley would pray to God, and he used to pray this, and I would advise you to start praying it as well, and I have learned to pray it. He prayed, God, take away the love of sinning. Take away the love of sinning. And Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. What's included in all things? Here it is. You ready? Don't complain. Don't argue. Be blameless. Be innocent. Be without blemish. Shine as a light to those around you. Become more like Christ in every way. How? You do everything you can. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you've got to keep knowing this, that God's already at work to help you to want and to will according to his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? He has a church that is together without complainers. See, complaining words are seeds of death. And God wants our mouths to speak life. Instead of complaining, trust that God is on the throne. And that he is perfectly good all the time. And that whatever difficulty that you are in and you're feeling frustration coming up, it's all part of his good plan for you it's making you more like jesus and instead of complain praise god that the end result of that obstacle where before you would complain now you count your blessings and you praise that obstacle is going to make you like jesus
Amen.